reading from Luke 13, 1 to 9. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse, the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you again, unless you repent, you will perish too. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down, it's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, so give it one more chance, leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. Verse 31 to 35. At that time, some Pharisees said to him, Get away from here. If you want to live, Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Jesus replied, Go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day. I will accomplish my purpose. Yes, today and tomorrow and the next day I must proceed on my way, for it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and you will never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. The kids are invited to kids' church. Thank you. Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you, the second part of her gospel reading said today. As Emily pointed out um, in her introduction, this is the second Sunday of Lent in which we sort of walk in this wilderness time and more importantly, in many ways, walk towards the cross with Jesus, but also walk towards the resurrection, um, the sign of new life. But as we saw last week, um, and the two weeks before us, what, what sort of happens in these Gospels is Jesus is confronted um, with Satan in the wilderness, and that calls him into this struggle, that humanity is bound in this struggle. For those of you um, reading the Brothers Karamazov, there's, there's a clever way in which they say, you know, um, 
God and, and the devil are in a fight, and it reside, the fight resides in the human heart, too, is, is there's this way in which it's interior as much as it's exterior to us. And so we heard that last Sunday. What happened at the Transfiguration the Sunday before we start our Lenten journey is we hear this proclamation of that you are my son again, those two forming a whole. And I, and I come back to that a lot because I think it's so critical for gospel literacy, I think for understanding the shape of these stories. I think oftentimes we can read the Gospels and gain information, but I think they have a particular shape in the way in which they want to form us. So this voice at the baptism that says, this is my son, is then heard again from heaven at the transfiguration. And in Luke's Gospel, what Jesus and Moses and Elijah are discussing is his exodus, his, his sort of leaving or, or making a new exodus. There's many different ways of interpreting it. Um, but preceding that was the one human voice who confesses who Jesus was in Peter. And there it's proclaimed, after he's proclaimed as the one whom is the Messiah, that you will come as victor and free us all. <laughs> no. Um, but the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's a very human thing, too, is that if we were to say, um, man, the only, I, like, I am, um, I prepare a lot for sermons, and then I, I trust the Spirit to give me analogies or, or word pictures, and the only one that came up there was this idea of sort of like um, uh, a draft. Uh, you know, like, you draft the best one, and, the, and, and I hate this one, so, like, blame the Spirit. Um <laughs> Uh, but, but you draft the best one, and it's like, you're, you're the one who's going to save us, and it's like as if the person drafted said, no, I'm not the chosen one the way you think. We'll lose many games. Uh, we'll never make it to the promised land you think it is. And not only that, as we're in our process of losing, you need to pick up your losing and follow me as well. Can we trade them? That's the first thing that would pop into our mind. Um, but that's sort of what happens in that picture is that, that he confesses that you're the one. And Jesus instantly then begins to talk about the suffering which he must enter to and the path in which he must walk. And in Luke's gospel, that you must pick up your cross, which is in all three, there's this, this sense of which how are you going to participate in this one? So this separates following Jesus from following sports teams as it becomes a claim on your life and you become a participant in it, a way in which maybe... You often didn't think through, I think, um, sometimes. It's not as clear that that's, that's sometimes when we say, this is what I want for my life, I want God, and then the next word is, pick up your cross. Now, in the other Gospels, it's just pick up your cross, but in Luke's Gospels, pick up your cross daily, which doesn't just mean this one-time act, but as if you arise each morning, you have a choice between um, which way shall I walk today? Shall I walk the path of victory? Shall I walk the path of being on top? Shall I walk the path that all we see in this world is all that there is? Or shall I pick up my cross and walk this path with this one? And so today's reading and the readings that we're going to be doing forward, um, are these ones on that path? Um, at the end of the temptation series in Luke, it says that Satan came back and waited for the opportune time as he tried to tempt Jesus off his path. In the temptation scene, he realized this is perhaps um, 
hand-to-hand combat is not the way with Jesus. It's that confronting him directly isn't going to work. And so you'll see in Luke that the opposition to Jesus, the struggle intensifies with human actors. Other people step into that spot. And incidentally, today we have two different ways of hearing that. Um, the first is about Pilate, and the second is about Herod. There's, there's two um, human actors that sort of step into today's reading, Pilate and Herod. Um, and so as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem for these 40 days, we walk towards Jerusalem with Jesus, um, uh, hearing about picking up our cross, and then hearing, hardest of all, on Passion, Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, Good Friday, um, our failures too that we don't go all the way. Um, and not only that, in, in Good Friday readings traditionally, it's the, the church that is the one that yells out, crucify him, crucify him. And we have our own blood on our hands as we walk this path. So the first warning that comes in today's passage is, now some present, uh, I think I got up there, now there were some present at that time who had told Jesus about the ba- Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty of all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. The first question that he gets in this chapter 13 is this idea of of, there's, there's a couple of things going on here. First is this, um, is our suffering the result of our sinfulness? Jesus is asked this way in different gospels in different ways. And so their first question is, um, and you can imagine this in some ways, is, is that there were Galileans walking towards um, the temple, walking into the temple, and as they're there, Pilate slaughters them, and their blood ends up mingled with the sacrifice. Um, The idea that there must have been some reason for that would be strong even with us, I think. And this creates a memory in a lot of ways. Like, what is is happening with this type of thing Um, in which these people going to offer their sacrifice, like were they offering their sacrifice incorrectly, which actually um, two men are consumed by fire in Leviticus for sort of messing around near the temple. Um, Was there something going on? And what Jesus wants to present clearly is this is the result of brutality. Um, This is the result of of a tyrant in some ways with, with Pilate. Now Pilate's interesting because if we didn't have the Gospels, we'd still know about Pilate and we'd still know that he was brutal to the Jews. There are seven ancient Near Eastern sources that reference Pilate. And they're all very clear that, like, Pilate was, was quite brutal to the Jews. There are actually some um, sort of letters from Rome. I forget what they are. I don't know if they're letters from Rome or warning that, like, actually telling Pilate to chill out a little. Like, he was that bad towards the Jews. Which is crazy that he's, this is a bit of a different note, in the creed. Um, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Um, and it's, uh, it's a dichotomy that I think speaks well to us, is that in Mary we have one who says yes to God, and in Pilate we have the human actor who says no. 
Jesus is the third historical figure, but being God and being the creed about Christianity, it's obvious he's in there. Um, but, but Pilate and Mary are the two other human ones, and there's this one born of the Virgin Mary, the one who says yes, and then crucified under Pontius Pilate, the one who says no. And so they come to him and they asked him about Pilate's act with these people. And Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he shifts subjects to what would be we don't have reference to what happens here, 18 people dying at the Tower of Siloam, except for that in the ancient Near East, building came with its own challenges, as it does today, although we've been mitigated as best as we could, buildings falling on people. Occasionally, I, I haven't been following it closely, but like forgetting to put the latch in the airline door seems to be a common occurrence lately, um, uh, or at least the way I'm getting news about it that I don't click on seems to be something that's happening. <laughs> Which is a way of saying that, like, you know, doing things in the world carries risk. And so Jesus shifts the tone from what about these people who were building a tower? And it fell in 18 of them. Do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? And as we walk through the book of Job this past summer, we kind of know the answer to this question is sort of like, no. Um, uh, but I think it's a real human question in a lot of times because when we're confronted with the absolutely terrible. I think it's a very human reaction to ask, what might they have done to lead to that? It's almost a way of shielding ourselves from what often is the brutal nature of reality. Is to say, well, if I can come up for some reason why so-and-so went through X, then I can at least reassure my, because we never invent some reason that we do too. It's like, you know they sped, like, um, and I speed too. Like, we never invent some reason that we're collectively found among the guilty with them. It's normally some sort of reason that, that is foreign to us so that we can some, somewhat buffer our reality in some ways to say that there's some cause for that that is not related to me. Um, and Job and Jesus, in various ways, cut that out from underneath us. Um, to be able to look at reality and divide it into those sort of segments and ways of sort of saying, um, here's how I can be safe from these things. And Jesus, this is a bit of a political question too, because what was their sort of initial answer is like, how are you going to handle Pilate? There's this expectation of like, look, you're this one. Are you still going to walk this path? Are you still going to go towards this guy who is absolutely terrible, terrible to all of us. Um, are you going to continue along this way? Um, and Jesus, as he gets closer and closer to the cross, it handles things in a way that is wise, in a way that gives him more authority by not answering the question at times. He's able to gain in his, um, how do they phrase this? He's able to gain in his autonomy and who he is as it seems like things are being bound around him. In his scene in the temple with Pilate, there's sort of this way in which as Pilate's pressing him, it becomes clear that Jesus is almost more in charge. Do as you'll have done. Um, it's this weird influx in the Gospels that Jesus seems to have more freedom as he moves towards this moment in this place. Incidentally, as we go through today's passage, too, I, I, Luke's gospel mentions Jerusalem, I think, 90-something times. All the rest of the New Testament, I think, mentions it 45 times. 
So Jerusalem is this heightened place for Luke. It's where Jesus was, was um, lost and found, where he was presented at the temple, um, and where, in many ways, he sets his face towards Jerusalem after the transfiguration scene. It is the realm in which God's activity is going to take place. This is going to come up in the next one. Um, God, Luke also is fond of the word repentance, which this goes back to, I think, chapter 9. I have not come to call the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. Not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's repentance that appears in this scene as well, that I tell you that unless you repent, you too will perish with them as well, unless you change your ways. Now, both the Hebrew and the Greek word for repentance have this connotation of changing directions with your life. Which is weird is we don't think of faith as much this way, but cog- um, uh, it's a cognitive thing for us. We think about faith as sort of mental ascent and this sort of thing. But the, the Hebrew way, oftentimes, of thinking about faith, Psalm 1 is one of the places where this shows up, is, is in the context of walking. Um, the faith is something walked. So the idea that repentance means to change your direction means in some sense moving into faith in a different way, in a different reality. The repentance calls us into shifting direction in some ways. So Jesus' command here, you, unless you repent, will perish in the same way. But I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Um, he's calling out for them to change directions. Now, there's lots of um, ancient Near East commentary about this in the Jewish Christian literature that sort of suggests he's telling them to turn from their way of, of in the next passage, perhaps turn of the way from the fox and embrace some other way. That they continue on the path that they're on um, in zealotry and in anger and in this, they too will perish in the same way that these others perished. Um, there's a Jewish tradition, or at least it seems like, and I'm not super familiar with this, but part of the way in which the Torah survives the terrors of what happens from um, the death of Jesus until the first or second century is through one Jewish sect that didn't go to war. Um, now, there's a tension there on, on should they have or shouldn't they, but, but rabbis looking back after that sort of cherish in them because it's the way in which they survived. So you have this choice between peace and violence. And if you don't change the direction, you too will perish in the same way. But there's another way, and I think Jesus builds different time for us here. And we've talked about this, I think, when we're going through Ecclesiastes. This is concept of memento mori, which means to remember that you will die. Um, it was popular with the ancient Christians. You've probably seen this image in a lot of um, Christian or Renaissance or other art of sort of this cross on the desk. Um, or not the cross, the, cr- the skull. Um, and this skull sort of has this idea of, of remember that you will die. It was a way of, of often monks bringing into their place this notion that they will die as well. Which keeps in mind this picture of repentance. And unless you change direction be your skull next on the desk. Um, there's a story of Benedictines who um, they, when somebody dies, they bury them and then they dig the next grave. And that graveyard is located between where they eat and where they pray, which by the way is what they do like 17 times a day. <laughs> um, 
the, the praying more than the eating, but they, um, in some sense, would walk past at least one of theirs future grave to be calling to mind that as I live this life, as I enter into the struggle for reality with Christ to, to see life ordered in some ways, what is it to remember that death comes? Particularly in a world, and I say this often, that shelves it off to the sidelines as much as possible. Um, we die in sterile homes far away from people often, um, uh, without people around and in sort of um, sterile environments and this, that, and the other. Death does not become a regular part of our life. There's a, a thinker, J.L. Allison, who tracks some of uh, what he considers the loss of luminous in the world, the loss of being able to see beyond, to the idea that, that we no longer see death even in the slaughtering of our animals. Death remains so foreign to us. Um, Yesterday was my birthday, and we had steak, and I don't know where the cow was. Um, there's there's no, uh, no way in knowing where these things come from. They magically appear at the grocery store. I mean, I like, like even locally, this is going too long. It's only going a minute. But I don't even, like, there are, like, some cows I see, but there's not even, like, a cow close enough that I'd be like, realistically, there's, like, cows in this valley. I mean, let alone if you buy, like, lamb or, like, a too long. Um, <laughs> just the idea that, like, you don't even see the animals within proximity in which you're eating. Like, death is so foreign and far from us. And so for Christians to be able to hold this, there are several thinkers I like who talk about how Christianity is training to die. And I think that might be... Um, something worth pondering in the modern world in which so many of us don't know how to die. It, it's something that we um, struggle with. The, the theologian um, Stanley Hauerwas says, you know, if there's any success for Christians in North America 100 years from now, it'll be that there are people who refuse to kill their young and people who refuse to kill their old. Um, I don't know if anybody's followed along with the it's got a kind name in Canada. I think it's called like the Maid Act or something. Do you know what it is, Emily? Yeah, that's what we call it, yeah. In Canada, it's called like the Maiden Act or something, and it's like assisted suicide is what it is. Um, and there's an extent in which when you see this practiced in Belgium, Canada, and many other places, um, if you're depressed, they're starting to open up the doorways for you to find these things. Or in Canada... They tell the story of a, you can, this was in the New York Times, of a homeless guy who before they wanted to treat him for his illness that he was suffering from, I forget what it was, they wanted to go over with him that he could die with assisted suicide. It saves money. Um, uh, I mean, that's the harsh reality we live in in this world. We're trying to make peace with that thing which is outside of us. So, Memento Mori, I think, has this way of, of pointing for that, but it also has a way, I think, of opening up what and Jesus is talking about in this passage is politics that weren't available to us if this is all that there is. If Jesus, um, and you'll see this imagery often, is that the skull surrounded by the lamb stomping on it, which we tried to do with our sticker, or the skull with flowers growing out of it, or this, that, and the other, is that he is also the one, as we walk this path with him, who conquers death. 
And if we know the one who conquers death, that means that there are other options available to us as we live in the world than rather than if it's just a flat existence. We can find different paths into forgiveness. We can find different paths into sharing. We can find different paths into being with one another if we know that there is one who has conquered death. And so for the Christian, which there's some reference that this might come from a Stoic tradition too, but the memento mori to remember that we will die will also be to remember that you know the one who conquers that thing. Surely it is coming for us in the same way, but we know one on the other side who holds it in his hands. Jesus shifts to this parable about the fig tree, which um, doesn't seem connected. Um, but then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Uh, why should it use up the soil? So the man replied, leave it alone for one year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. There's so a lot going on in this passage. One is that the fig tree is often a symbol for Israel's history. And so if you're looking at what the people, as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, is talking about, he's saying, look, you guys are like a fig tree. You've been called a fig tree throughout your history. And this fig tree is not bearing fruit. Now, Jesus and John will often connect repentance to the bearing of fruit. Repent so that you might bear fruit. And so what he says is that, and this is a bit of a hard parable. They're all hard, I guess, in some ways. But the man who has the fig tree, is it God who has the fig tree? And Jesus is the one who says, let me care for it and give it another year. Or is it Jesus who has the fig tree? Um, and he's speaking to, to the leaders of Israel or such to say, hey, you better get on it, and you need to sort of care for this tree for a year, or we're going to rip it out and replace it. Now, as I've mentioned before, Luke's second part of this gospel is Acts, and so there's this way in which Luke is pointing towards in which Israel will not be replaced, but will be expanded to include the Gentiles. That there's this way in which if this tree doesn't bear fruit in time, God will find a tree that bears fruit. It's a bit of a hint over this as well, although um, the New Testament proclaims that God does not abandon Israel as well. And so there is no um, way in which we can get around that, and I think that's good um, for a way. But this, this way in which this one comes out to this fig tree for, for three years, and I was talking to Ryan before church, it's often that they would plant fig trees in vineyards to sort of um, work as trellises, they would sort of hold up the grapes. And when the fig tree is ripe, I have no relationship to fig trees. I read about this, so if I'm wrong, you can tell me. When the fig tree is ripe, the vines are often dead. The grapes have been harvested. And so to come out and look at your fig tree is to be looking for the thing that's alive as everything else has sort of been brought in. And it is this thing that isn't bearing fruit. So Jesus tells the story to sort of remind it. Now, the thing that I love about the story as you read it and read it over again, it's the special care that the tree that doesn't bear fruit gets. Sir replied the man, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it, 
I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. The New Testament, the Old Testament, often proclaim that God's waiting is a time of kindness for us. That God is patient is this kindness. And so this teaching um, is to say that as, as we struggle to bear fruit, um, to go move from Israel to the church, um, perhaps it's for us to look for the one who wants to dig around it and fertilize it, to give us a chance to bear fruit in our lives and as a church in the world. Um, it's the special care that comes to the one struggling, which is odd, um, I think, sometimes, is, is this idea in which the one that is near getting turned down lets expend energy on it, to expend energy on the thing that only has one year left if it doesn't bear fruit, um, I think is, is interesting to that parable about Israel, but often in a way about us. The next one is they come to warn him about Herod. Um, Herod is um, sort of a fake king in this region in some ways. He gets there in a weird way. But they says, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Um, Jesus replies, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Another reference to Jerusalem. Um, but here Jesus calls, and Emily brought this forward in the introduction, a fox, which is even in ancient Near Eastern literature, all the stuff we believe if you're called a fox today, not foxy, a fox, um, is, is true, it, it kind of stretches throughout time. They're cunning animals, they're sort of lying animals, they're the things um, that sneak into the hen house. Which brings us to the next passage where he says he's like a mother hen in some ways. But Jesus points out that he has work to continue doing. That Herod, or any threat to who he is, is not um, binding, um, that he is going to continue his work as he goes to Jerusalem, the place where he must suffer many things. You can see this, this sort of Satan giving these offers again. You know, human actors come up to him and say, you know, if you keep going this way, you face Pilate. In another way, you face Herod. Are you sure this is what you want to do? And Jesus, like I said, seems to grow more resolute in scenes. Go tell that fox... I will continue on my work of restoring creation today and tomorrow. And as the Christian, as we read on the third day, I will reach my goal, I will bring it to completion, obviously makes us think of the resurrection. On the third day, that will be brought to uh, completion, perfection in, in a different way of saying it. And this is Jesus then saying that, um, it's for him to die in Jerusalem as all the other prophets have. Which brings us to the final portion of today's passage, which is one I think is just beautiful. Um, and I'm going to read a section from Barbara Brown Taylor, which is on the back of the bulletin after I talk about the passage just briefly. But what she proclaims is what Jesus says here is an event that never happened. So if you hear this and hear it properly, you hear lament within it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you heal co prophets and stow those who sent you. I have often longed to gather your children together as a hen 
gathers chicks under her wings. And here's the pain. And you were not willing. Herod, the fox, Pilate, the one who brings destruction to the sacrifices within the temple even. Uh, uh, Parker Bryan read for us from Deuteronomy this notion of the eagle too, that God has this bird-like relationship to Israel. Um, but here it's, it's this one named a hen, um, not exactly a bird of prey or a killer, um, but one that longs to gather them under, but they were not willing. And we talked about this at small group this week, but a hen's ability to save its chicks is an offering its own life. A hen doesn't save its own <laughs> chicks by defeating the fox. It saves its life by getting eaten by the fox so that the chicks might live. Two different commentators, now again, didn't grow up on a farm, um, referenced that, that oftentimes after wildfires, I think I found a passage of it one time after I preached this passage, um, that, or a picture of it, but it's not pretty, um, that after wildfires sort of cut through farms and plains, that they'll often find mother hens over chicks, that some of whom survived the fire. It is this type of relationship that a hen has to its chicks that is willing to sacrifice itself so that they might live. Which is crazy that Jesus picks this image. It would be more fitting if we were designing this story to say, um, I'm like a mama bear, which is, I don't know if that's an ancient reference, but is one that people use today. I'm a mama bear for, don't touch my mama bear energy or whatever. And yet, Jesus is one who has hen, like, is, is not making the other person die for them. He's one who offers himself for them. There's a, I talked about nonviolence last week, but there's, there's this line from George Patton that said that, it, where he's talking to soldiers, and he said, the goal isn't to die for your country, it's to make sure the poor other bastard dies for his country. Um, which is this way of saying that that's the image we would pick, right? We wouldn't pick, hey, your goal is to be the mother hen who dies. Your goal is to make sure the other poor animal dies for its hunger, cause, whatever it's going through. Radically different. Um, so I want to end with this image and the quote from just reading through this short essay, not the whole thing, um, but some passages from this Barbara Brown Taylor thing. And this is actually in a chapel in Jerusalem. This essay starts with her describing her going to this chapel and finding this image. Um, and she says, down below the front of the altar is a picture of what never happened in the city. It is a mosaic of a medallion of a white hen with a golden halo around her head. Her red cone resembles a crown and her wings are spread wide to shelter the pale young chicks that crowd around her feet. There are seven of them with black dots for eyes and orange dots for beaks. They look happy to be there. The hen looks ready to spit fire if anyone comes near her babies. But like I said, it never happened, and the pitcher does not pretend it did. The medallion is rimmed with red words in Latin. Translated in English, they read, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen under her brood, under her wings, and you were not willing. 
The last phrase is set in the outside circle, in which the pool of red underneath the chick's feet reads, you were not willing. Nothing that happens in Jerusalem is insignificant. When Jerusalem ablaze God, the world spins peacefully on its axis. When Jerusalem ignores God, the whole planet wobbles. If the city were filled with hardy souls, this would not be a dangerous situation. Unfortunately, it is filled with pale yellow chicks and at least one fox. In the absence of a mother head, some of the chicks have taken to following the fox around. Others are huddled out in the open where anything with claws can get them. Across the valley, a white hen with a golden halo around her head is clucking for all she is worth. Most of the chicks cannot hear her, and the ones that do not recognize her, they no longer recognize their voice. They've forgotten who they are. If you have ever loved someone so you could not protect, then you understand the depth of Jesus' lament. All you can do is open your arms. You cannot make anyone walk into them. Meanwhile, this is the most vulnerable posture in the world. Wings spread, breast exposed, but if you, want, if you mean what you say, then this is how you stand. Given the number of animals available, it is curious Jesus chooses a hen. What is the precedent for this? But a hen is what Jesus chooses. If you think about it, it's, it's pretty typical of him. He was always turning things upside down so that children and peasants wind up on top, kings and scholars land at the bottom. He's always wrecking our expectations of how things should turn out by giving prizes to the losers and paying the last force. So of course he chooses a chicken, which is about as far from a fox as you can get. The way the operations become very clear. You can live by licking your chops or you can die by protecting your chicks. Jesus won't be the king of the jungle in this or any story. What he will be is a mother hen who stands between the chicks and those who mean to do harm to them. She has no fangs, no claws, no ripping muscles. All she has her will is her willingness to shield her babies with her own body. If the fox wants them, he will have to kill her first. Which he does, as it turns out. He slides up one, one night in the yard when all her babies are asleep. When her cry wakens, they scatter. She dies the next day where both foxes and chickens can see her. Wings spread, breast explodes, without a single chicken beneath her feathers. It breaks her heart, but it doesn't change a thing. If you mean what you say, then this is how you stand. Let us pray. Holy Father, we hear this teaching. First, as we look at the world in which people die from politics and natural disasters and all other things, that we should repent, that we should turn from our ways and bear fruit. That as we can be, at times, a fig tree who receives special attention and care, it's not for our own selves to build ourselves up, but that we might bear fruit, that we might flourish. And so too, God, we hear the teaching that Jesus offers in the mother hen. We are not hens. But he is one who offers himself up for us in that pattern. As foxes and danger probes the world, it is not God who doesn't shield us, or it is God who shields us, but not at saving himself. 
as we walk this path, we walk to the cross with him. And there it is, we wait for three days for the work to be brought to completion. We ask this.